Good morning. My name is Anthony. I'm the pastor here at Valley Hope. Um, this weekend, um, from Thursday to Saturday, I was at a Presbytery meeting. Uh, those, if you're not familiar with how that works, we're a Presbyterian church, so three times a year in January, April, and September, uh, churches in our Presbytery, which is our region, which is mostly South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, and actually a couple churches in West Virginia. Um, we meet together and we have all kinds of different work that we do in committees. We come together, we worship together, get training together, um, we examine candidates for ordination together. Um, and I always try to tell you when Presbytery has happened because I love being part of the EPC and our church is connected to this body. This, we, our presbytery is called the Presbytery of the Mid-Atlantic. Um, for example, we give money to them every year. So for every member of our church, we, we give the $27. Is that right? $25? Something like that. $25. Uh, $25 for each of our members every year we give. So it ends up being you know a couple thousand dollars, which for us is... is not a little chunk of change. And there's a reason we do that. For example, um, I serve on the, what we call a church development committee and work with church planters. Um, our church is not yet ready to plant a church. We can't handle that yet. One day, God willing, we will be. But we give money to the presbytery so that our presbytery can support church planters. So this time, um, we... Uh, celebrated two little baby church plants. Uh, one was, uh, which we're directly supporting, is in Ashland, Virginia. They just had their first service three weeks ago. And there's another church in Charlotte that was just started, which is really cool. Um, the pastor's name is Victor. He, our denomination has a partnership with the Presbyterian Church of Mexico, which is the lar second largest Presbyterian denomination in the world and is growing very fast. And we have this partnership so that we can plant churches with them and they can plant churches with us. Victor is coming from the Presbyterian Church of Mexico to plant a church in a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood in Charlotte. And our presbytery actually helped him get the down payment to a house to buy a house so that he could have house church in this neighborhood in Charlotte. And already uh, he's had three services, two or three services, and the whole neighborhood um, knows him and his family. And um, the reality of it is that there is a small Baptist church right in the middle of this neighborhood. They're all white, and the, and the Hispanic community is afraid to go there whether because they've been made clear that they're unwelcome or because of the times that we live in, they're afraid to go there. But Victor's in the neighborhood now. And so now there's these meetings, people who were afraid of the church, who had been burned by the church, who had only had experience in Catholic church back home. Now they're part of this new baby church. We are a part of that. That's, that's our family. We helped to plant that church. Um, so... It's really fun. Well, the meetings are not always fun. 
Um, but it's fun to see what's going on. You are a part of this. And uh, just so you know, our presbytery, I mentioned it before, is, is multiplying. That's what we're supposed to say. It's splitting. Um, it's the lar- we have the largest presbytery in the denomination, geographically, in number of churches. There's like 110 churches. And most of the presbyteries in our denomination have like 30 or 40. So we have something like a fifth of the denomination in our presbytery. And it's too big. It's just too big. We can't, we're not connected enough. So we're splitting actually into three presbyteries. And we're figuring this is a like two-year process. And at the same time, figuring out how to pull our money and resources to keep planting churches. 25% of our, our presbytery's budget goes to planting churches, which is a crazy high number. And we want to keep it that high together. So that's what's going on. Whether you knew it or not, you're, you're in this thing. Um, and if you ever have any questions about that, what that looks like, if you'd ever like to go for some reason, um, we can talk about that. And I can, I can try to figure out how to make that happen for you. So just let me know. It's a ton of fun. Okay, we are, um, we are in this series on the Apostles' Creed um, at this point, taking it line by line and going it, uh, directing our attention, using this creed to have our attention directed to the scriptures. Today's line of the creed um, is that we believe in Jesus, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, in two different sections. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from me. From her. Then in this next section, she goes to visit the aforementioned Elizabeth, who is also pregnant with Jesus' second cousin, John the Baptist, we'll come to find out. And in verse 46, Mary sings this very famous song, the Magnificat. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. 
and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the word, the eternal word, who took on flesh for us, for our benefit, and for your glory. Father, I pray that our hearts would be soft, that the great story of your invasion would come home to us personally, would pierce our own stony hearts, rekindle in us a fondness and affection, a love for you that bears fruit in our lives. We trust that you'll do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. To the praise of Jesus, amen. This is, a, this is a pretty famous passage. If you go to church at Christmas time, you've probably heard at least portions of these readings. And the creed here um, points us to two components of the story here, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And you see the enunciation of the coming together of these two elements in this story. Um, it's, it's rather unfortunate that down the line of history, um, we Protestants have sort of breezed past Mary a bit too quickly. Um, if you go back and read some of the things that the Protestant reformers said, like John Calvin and Martin Luther, they say things about Mary that to us feel foreign and, and the dreaded Roman Catholic. There's a lot of fear of being Roman Catholic in Protestant churches, but if you go back and read Calvin and Luther, they say things about Mary that feels like it's coming from that camp. And it's probably a sign and an indicator to us that we've gotten a bit far away from our roots, as it were, because we are afraid of being this thing or, or that thing. And to be clear, I don't think about Mary the same way the Roman Catholic Church does. But she is important. And she is this person that provides for us a glimpse into how God will work in the world and the right response to God. Mary is unique in her response to God. You can see it in the, the quick way that she responds to the word, even in the midst of her confusion. Mary's story is actually this culmination and this apex fulfillment of a running theme throughout Scripture. If you track Israel's story, you should notice that a barren woman pay, uh, plays a specific, special, important role throughout the story. It's a, a recurring role that there is a need for a child and God providing a child miraculously where it didn't seem possible that there would be a child. It frequently happens in the book of Genesis 
Uh, for example, famously, Abraham and Sarah cannot become pregnant. And Husso Gonzalez, a theologian historian, points out that in the mind of the ancient reader, it's always the woman's fault when the woman is, is barren, that this is where the problem lies. Sarah is barren, and she believes that it's her fault, it's her problem. So she tells her husband to go sleep with somebody else to make a baby because it's her fault that she can't make a baby. And what does God miraculously do? He provides a child of the covenant. What does Isaac do? He prays that God would miraculously provide children with his wife, and his wife becomes pregnant with twins. What, what, is, what happens with the son of, of Rebekah? Um, Jacob is one of his, now that's just a whole other messed up scenario, but he's sleeping with four women, two wives, two concubines, but his favorite wife cannot get pregnant, and he prays for her, and she prays, and there's agony in her spirit that she is barren, and what does God do? He responds to her and enables her to become pregnant and bears two children, Joseph and Benjamin, and Joseph ultimately is the one that carries the story of Genesis forward. We see it even further past uh, the Pentateuch, where Samuel is born to Hannah. Hannah is a barren woman, and the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel is all about her struggles and her the shame of her barrenness, that she cannot bear fruit, and God miraculously provides for her a child. And this, she's not the only one. There's Samson and there's others. This is a running theme in this story of Israel. God provides children to barren women. And here, Luke tells us that in the story of Israel comes what, again, Husto Gonzalez calls this barren woman par excellence. The barren woman of all barren women because she, it's not even that she, she hasn't been able to get pregnant, it's she can't get pregnant. She's a virgin. She's never slept with a man. It's impossible for her to be pregnant. And so this is like the apex barrenness event. And into that scenario, the God of Israel, who has made fruitful the wombs of barren women, comes and does something entirely, singularly unique and enables Mary to become pregnant. Now Mary's question when she hears the news is entirely reasonable. Wait, how is this going to be possible Ancient people didn't understand the mechanics necessary of conception, but they understood the basics. And she said, I'd never known a man. How is it possible then that I will become pregnant? And the angel tells her that it is an act of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit plays this important, dynamic, repeated role in the Gospel of Luke. And you can see it right here from the beginning. And Luke records these words for her, that the Holy Spirit will come and overshadow her. The image there is, is literally of overshadowing, that something big stands between you and the sun and casts a shadow over you. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you and enable you to conceive. And this is the remarkable nature of the story of, of, of Israel, is that women like Mary take center stage in a way that's unexpected. There is no participatory covenant-bearing male here. At least in all the other stories, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, 
They're, they're there and they're present. They're part of the process. But that has been removed even in this unexpected story. So that all you have there is this barren woman. This woman who cannot get pregnant. There is no male contribution. It is just the God of Israel stepping into Israel's story, overshadowing Mary and making the miraculous happen. Out of Mary bringing the very creator of the universe into a creaturely beginning. And this is really at the heart of what the creed is saying with this one line. We have to read this creed in the context in which it was written and confessed. In the time that this confession comes out, the church is really trying to understand who is Jesus, what is Jesus? What is He? And what the the creed is trying to make very clear to you and I who confess it and to make plain what we see essentially in the Scriptures is that Jesus has always eternally been divine, member of the Godhead, present for all of time, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, very God from very God, the other creed will say. But he's also fully man. He is is conceived in the womb. He is born from a mother. He grows up as a child. He enters into puberty. He reaches adulthood just like you and I. And the thing that the church is trying to put language to, to understand and to grasp, is this incredible mystery that in one person, Jesus, there are two natures. There is God, fully 100% God, and a human being, fully 100% human. And a lot of times, if we don't think about this, there are these false ways of understanding it that kind of naturally pop into our mind. We think of us, and we think Jesus is kind of like us, but it's like if you took me and you turned down the dial on my humanity a little bit and turned up the divinity dial, or if I was an empty glass, you pour like, you know, half of it was this ingredient and half of it was that ingredient, you kind of stir it up. But that's not what we believe. That's not what the church believes. That's not what we are confessing in this creed. As much as you are human, Jesus is human. As fully as you are human, God himself becomes human in Jesus. That's why Jesus doesn't, poof, come into being, appearing from nowhere as a fully formed adult. That's why it's important that he's conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary, that He experiences every stage of development that you do. He is not like the gods of other stories who take on human form, but they're essentially themselves wearing a costume. That's not what Jesus is. He is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, is a baby, has his diapers changed, spits up on his mother, wakes his mother up in the middle of the night so that he can breastfeed just like you and I. There is no part of our humanity that he does not have. 
And yet, though fully like us, he is also definitely not like us. But he is fully divine. He is himself in his full divinity. And somehow in this one person, both things forever. And this really matters for you and I in the normalcy, the mundane nature of our everyday life. Because in this act of God entering into the story of humanity in this unexpected, fully embodied way, Jesus takes up the cause of our own story. Jesus experiences and has our humanity and brings it into the middle of divinity. He, in some sense, in his body, carries us into the throne room of heaven. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the best high priest. Because the high priest that Israel once knew was only a person just like us. And they had to make sacrifice for their own sin. And they could only stand to be before God one day a year on the Day of Atonement. But Jesus, Jesus is a different kind of high priest. Because Jesus is fully God and fully man, he stands perpetually in the throne room of God himself. And we don't have to be afraid. We get to see in him the surprising, unbelievable thing that Scripture says that Christ is our brother in some sense. And we can approach the throne of grace with absolute assurance that one of our own is yet also somehow very God himself. When you are experiencing the deep frailties of your humanity, you do not have to imagine that God does not understand what it means to be human. He may not have experienced the full sinfulness of our humanity that we experience, but he certainly experienced the frailty, the fragility, the grief of being human. Because to be human is to grieve and to suffer, and God has not removed himself from that, but has instead taken it up for himself. So when you are racked and consumed by the fragility of your humanity, of what it means to be human, you have a God who personally, experientially understands. And yet, it is our great, joyful confession that Jesus was not just a man. It is is this weird quirk of history that when the creed is is being written, they're trying to speak against people who just couldn't believe that Jesus was an actual human being. 
They said he had to have come down from heaven. He had to have appeared like an angel. This had to be some sort of like figment of our imagination. There's no way that he's actually one of us. We just can't believe that he was actual humanity. And so this line of the creed is speaking directly to them and saying, yeah, he is born of Mary, human all the way. And yet in our time, we have the opposite problem. There's no way that Jesus is divine. We get it. Jesus of Nazareth was a person born in Israel a long time ago. But there's no way that he can possibly be divine. And yet this same one line of the creed speaks against us as much as it did those who went before us. Let it be clear, hearer, listener, those who come into the church, we are saying he is always, from this moment forward, both. That it is God himself, creator of the universe, who becomes creature. This unexpected, almost incomprehensible thing. And this actually, in Jesus' story, is the picture of the plan of all of the biblical story. The story starts with Jesus, with God, making the world, making it good, and God coming to dwell with his people, walking with them, going for walks in the evening. And sin destructively rips apart these two parties, creator and creation, so they cannot be together. And the only sign that, that the people of Israel have for so long that God would not leave it like this is they have a tabernacle and they have a temple where for brief moments of time they can believe and even see that the presence of God comes to his creatures again and then he leaves And unfortunately, people have doubted from that day all the way to ours that there's no way then that God, the creator, could ever actually be with his people again. There's no way, though some part of us longs to be in the place where we could be at rest with him, to be in that good place with him. There's no way that that could actually happen here again, that something has got to change. God's got to probably like nuke this place. He's got to get us out of here. He's got to do something because God cannot be here. And Jesus comes into the story of Israel, into the story of humanity, and becomes this living, breathing tabernacle, this living, breathing temple where the Creator comes and dwells with the creature forever. And this is where all of history is headed. It's the place where Jesus comes and reigns on the earth. It's not when God hits the eject button and flings us out of here and we all become disembodied spirits somewhere else. The whole story is moving to the moment when creature and creator see each other face to face and dwell there together forever. The destiny of humanity and all of creation is that the Creator would come and live and dwell with us. And in the person of Jesus, we see this confirmed promise. It will surely happen. It will surely happen. 
Because in God himself is the union of these two things, creator and creature. (coughs) The work of Jesus makes possible for us to have a hope that is sure and is lasting. I want to read this little few lines from, there's this old book called On the, Cre- On the Incarnation by St. Athanasius, and it really is small. It's like this big, um, and it's like a two-for-one if you ever want to try it, because this part of the book is written by C.S. Lewis. This introduction is by C.S. Lewis, so it's like you get a really old dude, and you get C.S. Lewis. <clears throat> it's a bargain. It's worth your time. Athanasius is defending this idea. Why does this matter? That God would become incarnate like this. And his whole focus is on the fact that God takes up everything that he intends to redeem. (coughs) He says, now the very corruption of death no longer holds ground against human beings because of the indwelling word, Jesus, in them through his own body. As when a great king has entered some large city and made his dwelling in one of the houses in it, such a city is certainly made worthy of high honor. And no longer does any enemy or bandit descend upon it, but it is rather reckoned worthy of all care because of the king's having taken residence in one of its houses. So also does it happen with the king of all coming himself into our realm and dwelling in a body like the others. Every design of the enemy against human beings has henceforth ceased. The corruption of death, which had prevailed formerly against them, perished. For the race of human beings would have been utterly dissolved had not the master and savior of all, the son of God, come for the completion of death. This is what Jesus has done for you and I in this moment when the Holy Spirit overshadows this faithful woman, our sister Mary. And when Mary looks to God in trust and says, yes, let it be done to me, whatever you say, trusting in the power of God, the healing of humanity is clenched by Jesus' own work. Wherever you are, death is pushing in on you. you. You may be plagued with grief at the literal death of people that you love. You may carry in you the sense that death is coming. Some people wrestle with that fear all their life. They can hear the footsteps of doom. And you may feel like you are days away. You may feel like you should be decades away. And yet, either way, you feel like death is at your doorstep. But this, the birth of Jesus, is for you a promise that not even death itself will have its way with you. That the designs of the enemy and the bandit of your soul are now forever undone. Because the Son of God took on the flesh of the sons and daughters of God. 
and banish for us our terrible enemies. Now God stands before you and tells you this surprising news as much as he told Mary. That God is wanting to do something in and for you that is almost inconceivable. And for you this morning, it might be just something you can barely even accept. But the response that Mary gave is for you, our instruction book. Will you, without even completely understanding, trust him? Will you trust him to overshadow the circumstances of your life, the depths of the darkness that you have been entrapped in? Would you let him overshadow even the grave itself so that he might scoop you up and carry you into the divine life? And it's not about you, just like it wasn't about Mary. You may not feel competent. You may not feel like you are enough. And you are not but Jesus is. This morning, whether you have known Jesus for a long time, or it's been a long time, or it's been never, this message stands before you with the same invitation. Good news is available to you. God wants to do a good thing in you. Will you say yes to him and trust and let him overwhelm and overshadow you? and carry you surely even through the valley of shadow of death and into the very life of God now and forever. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but instead laid aside all the trappings of heaven to take on the form of a servant, as Philippians 2 tells us. Father, I pray that you would help us to see the great goodness of all that you do for your people, and that you would help us to trust you. We pray that you would help us to be the kind of people that sing Mary's song. Look what God has done he has come for the humble and the lowly and the poor. He's come for us. Father, I pray that you would give us confidence not in the strength of our own arms, but in the strength of your own work. Everything that we feel that is frail and small about us, you have taken up our humanity, you have taken up our body. And you provide for us access to your own life. I pray, God, that those who have grown used to you and not looked at you really and truly will be comforted, challenged, and charged to look at you and that they might be transfixed by your beauty. I pray, Father, for those who have never look to you and trust. I ask God that you would deliver them from a life that is defined only by themselves. The meaning that they can generate, 
the overcoming that they can muster. And instead, Father, I pray that you would bring them into a life that is charged, is full of the magnificent beauty and life of God. Father, take away all of our petty excuses. Help us to be so enticed by your own life that we can't keep ourselves from you. Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness and your kindness, for experiencing all of our smallness and seeing out this victory over the enemies of our soul. We trust you, Lord God, that you will complete what you have started. We look forward to that great day. Amen.